Now, I'm, I'm hoping you all got a, a study guide as you came in. Uh, we're, we're kicking off again a new sermon series. And as you would be uh, aware, the way we've been doing it lately is that uh, we uh, produce a sermon, um, a sermon series and a study guide to sit alongside so that growth groups, as they kick off for the year, have a resource to be able to uh, discuss uh, an opportunity time within a small group to be able to discuss what happens here on a Sunday morning. And we found it to be a great blessing that uh, you, can, you can listen to the sermon, but an opportunity to ask questions, to discuss further uh, and encourage one another. So these um, primarily for use within our, our growth groups, but please take them away and reflect on them as an individual as well, even if you're not in a growth group. But a better thing would be to be in a growth group, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So just be aware of that. Now, what is this new sermon series? For the, the next 10 weeks, which basically will lead us up until uh, Easter, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. So this is where we're going to be spending our time for the next 10 weeks. We've titled this sermon series, A Light in the Darkness, and if it's not already apparent to you, uh, it will be as we go along. John, the, the, the Apostle John, loved the analogy of the light. And so we've termed this a light in the darkness. Now, the question you could ask is, well, why John? Why the Gospel of John? And I could answer that by saying, well, why not? Um, we've spent some time in the Gospel of Mark previously and, and other books if you don't know, the, the, the Gospel of John is quite different to Matthew, Mark and Luke. Matthew, Mark and Luke have got a lot of similarities which focus on the story, the story of Jesus, his life and his activities and what happened. And that's a, an incredibly important part to see this story of the ministry and the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written Afterwards, and John probably had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's almost like for John, as an apostle who talked with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who traveled with Jesus, had some this insight uh, that it's almost like filling a few of the gaps of the other three Gospels. And it seems to focus more on the, the words of Jesus, whereas the, uh, the other three Gospels tends to focus on the activity. If any of you have had those, you know, the red, anyone got a red letter Bible? You know, the, the red letters are the words of Jesus. If you have a look through Matthew, Mark and Luke, you'll see words of Jesus here and here. In John, it's just half of the whole gospel of John is in red because it's just focusing so much on the words of Jesus. So we're going to be focusing these next 10 weeks, we're going to be focusing on mainly passages and stories that are unique to John. There are a number, a number of stories you may or may not be aware that are unique to John, and so we're going to be focusing on those as much as possible. And of course, we're going to lead up to, this just makes sense, doesn't it? We lead up to the, uh, the finale of, of, of the Gospel of John at Easter time. So we've called it the light in the darkness, which is a common metaphor of John. So today... It's not going to be a surprise to you where we're going to start this sermon series. We're going to start it in John chapter 1. How about that? So if you've got your Bibles with you, we're not going to put the whole passage up on the screen. So I encourage you to read along in your Bibles or tablet or whatever. John 1, 
verse 1 through to 14. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to became, become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've just, um, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Christmas, and of course it's a, it's a, it's a busy time, and, and uh, even though Christmas to a certain extent is, is changing as our society gets more and more secular, there's always a lot of images um, around Christmas time, and you see them in, in shops and in Christmas cards and in emails and whatever, lots of images. Now, I'm not talking about Santa and all the Christmas tree and everything, but the, the images of you know, Mary and Joseph, a baby, a manger, shepherds, wise men, a stable, a star, Bethlehem. They're, they're all the common images that we associate with Christmas. True? Nativity scenes, all of those sort of things um, remind us of Christmas. Now, what would Christmas look like without any of those images? Mary and Joseph, Bethlehem, the stable, the manger, the stars, the shepherds, the wise men. What would Christmas look like? Here's a clue. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is essentially a Christmas story. Surprise, surprise, there's none of those images in it. And we don't tend, we don't tend to use John 1 on Christmas Day because it doesn't elicit those images within us but it's no nonetheless it's a christmas story and in in that passage we just read verse 1 to verse 14 i reckon we could sum it all up in four words four words verse 14 the first four words of verse 14 says the word became flesh there it is it sums up Christmas. And this, this is ultimately why we celebrate Christmas. It's the key in many respects. John, we will discover over these next 10, 10 weeks, if you don't already know, the Apostle John was a master of words. And he seemed to be able to find ways to be able to pull these incredible concepts and bring it down with a, 
a sort of economy of words that just punch through. And here it is right now. All of Christmas summed up in four words. God becoming a human being. Or we use the word Emmanuel. God with us. God coming to us. It's the central focus of John's gospel. And so you can see here, as John starts this gospel, he wants to give an account of the words and the life of Jesus Christ. He's setting it up. And this is an incredibly powerful introduction to a gospel, as we will see. Matthew, Mark and Luke, they give earthly accounts and they give, you know, the activities of Jesus. John here focuses, and we'll see this over the next 10 weeks, on supernatural elements. Supernatural things, things that we don't see automatically. And particularly when it comes to the Christmas story. We think, you know, mangers, wise men and shepherds. He's talking about the word becoming flesh. And he opens with this powerful statement. Now, it starts off with, in the beginning, was the Word. And the question we've got to ask to, to set the, 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 everything straight from the Word go is, why is Jesus called the Word? Now, wh- why is he called the Word? Why didn't John just sort of go, well, everybody knows who I'm talking about. I'm just going to call him Christ. So in the beginning was Christ. And the Christ. Why didn't John start with, you know, in the beginning was Jesus Christ. Why did he say the word? Now, many of you would know that in the Greek, this word, we call it logos. You've probably heard that before. Logos is the Greek for this word here, if you look at it in the Greek. And it's an incredibly loaded term, both to Jews and to Gentiles. And as a matter of fact, at the very start of this gospel, he uses the word logos three times in one verse. So he's really setting everything up here, John is. Now, do you notice in John's gospel, John doesn't bother with trying to explain the the, the definition of the word logos. He just goes straight into it because there is an assumption for the reader, for the Jew and also for the Greek that they understood. Because you see, for the Greeks, they understood the word logos to be what's called a creative force. They saw logos as a creative force, an impersonal force, source of knowledge and wisdom. And they referred to that, the Greeks, as this logos. Now, today we don't have an, an, an immediate association with that, but one of the closest would be, you know, how some people, we don't want to use the word God, but we know that the world just hasn't come together accidentally. We know there has to be some sort of force that's pulled all of this together, not just by a, a, a random accident. And so we use the term intelligent design you've you've heard that word intelligent design to basically infer that it wasn't an accident that someone or something or a force or whatever was behind it now as a matter of fact albert einstein was one of the originators of this term intelligent design because einstein the more he he studied the more he realized hang on I don't think this can be an accident. So we've got to use some sort of vague term, this equivalent to Logos. But Einstein said, it would be intelligent design, but we could never know the intelligent designer. That's what Einstein said. 
Now, here's John way back here writing to these Greeks with a sort of a similar philosophy. And he's saying here, the word, this logos, is, is not just a creative force. What John is emphasizing here and what we're reading here in John 1 is the logos, yes, is creative. Yes, is a force. But ultimately, what he wants to emphasize is logos is a person. And this is one of the, the, the efforts of John very early on. John says the Logos is a person, and not only that, it's someone we can know. Someone we can know personally. John is unveiling the Logos, the creative force, who can be known. Now imagine what that would be like for the Greek reading this for the first time, going, all this time I've been told that the Logos, this, this force out there could never be known. We could never know it. And here's John. This is the truth. And it's one of the most powerful statements in all of the Bible. The Word becomes flesh. Continuing on this Christmas theme, have you noticed in the last probably few decades or so, people will say, look, I love Christmas. I love all of the images and all of the, 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 the wonderful notion about Christmas, but I don't want the religious stuff. But I like singing carols. Like, you know, put on a carols by candlelight. We'll be down there. We'll be singing the good old favorite carols. But don't preach the religious stuff. Have you heard that? Give me carols, just don't preach. Hmm, interesting. One of the most, I think one of the favorite carols of all is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know, everybody loves singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, swinging their candle about, as long as you don't preach the religious stuff. Let me just take one of the excerpts out of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It goes like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. But John, just don't preach it, will you? We can sing it, but don't preach it. This is essentially John chapter 1. Can you see that? The Word became flesh. And millions of people sing it every Christmas time and have no idea. One of the most powerful statements sung in a carol. God came to us, and this is straight out of John chapter 1. So let's go back to John 1.14. I'm actually sort of using this, the final part of our, of our passage, I'm actually using as the, the exclamation mark. The Word became flesh. And so we focused on that first part. Let's have a look at the second part. And made His dwelling among us. He dwelt amongst us, amongst mankind, amongst our people. Now, here's the key in all of this. He didn't dwell amongst us as a, as a vision or as an apparition or as a, as a ghost. He dwelt amongst us as a physical person, flesh and blood. 33 years of his life, he dwelt with us. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians reinforces this point. In, two, in Colossians 2 verse 9, he says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, deity, that's the, the God, God, lives in bodily form. Think on that one for a, a day or two. 
the fullness of God in a body. No reduction in deity, no reduction in humanity. This is the Christmas story. The Word became flesh. Okay, so verse 14, we've established that this is what John is focusing on. Now let's have a look at the previous 13 verses in John chapter 1 and see how John builds this argument up to verse 14 where he says the word became flesh so um, now you've got your study guide with you so this will help you along because if I skip through this there's information there in your study guide that will help you through I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on three commonly known conditions about Christ that is developed within John chapter 1 um, and the reason why the word became flesh is by virtue of these three conditions. And the first one is this. It's by virtue of his pre-existence. Pre-existence. What does that mean? Now, that's, once again, that's so if you, it's written in your study guide there, just in case you can't keep up with that. So let's go right back to the very beginning of this passage. John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word now first you've got to ask is beginning of what beginning of the new testament beginning of the old testament the beginning of you know these people or that people or beginning of of what was it like once upon a time like where's the beginning the beginning of everything that exists everything that we see everything that we know and so here it is is at the beginning Jesus was. Jesus was at the very beginning. That's what John 1 emphasizes. He's not a created being. Since time began, he was. John emphasizes that point. And this is what's called pre-existence. He existed before the beginning. John doesn't say at the beginning the word came into existence. He doesn't say that. Very carefully he doesn't say that. You know, there's others... And there's a number of belief systems out there that believe that Jesus was created by God. And this denies Christ being God. As soon as something is created by God, it can't be God. If you create something, that doesn't become you. So this is so important. Jesus Christ is not a competitor to God. He's not an add-on to God. He's not created by God. And he's not another God. He is God. John chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus is coming right to the very end of his earthly ministry and the, the pressure's on. He, he knows he's going to be arrested any moment. And so these words, um, as a prayer, are incredibly uh, poignant at this time. John 17, verse 5, Jesus says in a prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, with the glory I had with you before the world began. So before the beginning. So what happened before Genesis chapter 1? Jesus. He was there before then. This makes this very, very clear. Pre-existence. The pre-existent condition of Christ is he's outside of creation, he's before creation, he's eternal and therefore he is God. 
The next condition I'd like to talk about, so we talk about the pre-existence, now we're going to talk about the co-existence. This is where it gets really interesting. Look at the second half of verse 1. The second half of verse 1 says, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hmm. That's awkward, isn't it? How do you explain that? Now, if you came along here and you thought, oh, finally John's going to talk about the Trinity and finally John's going to explain it in simple terms so we can all explain it and all have a complete understanding of the Trinity. Sorry about that. Um, we, we, we simply can't. It's one of the incredible mysteries that we see that is so clearly explained in, in Scripture. But to try to reduce it into simple terms, we're always going to, if we do that, we're going to reduce God to something other. It's the mystery. He's with God and he is God. And he is as much God as God is God. He is a person with God and he is a person who is God. This is at the heart and soul of our faith. Not only is Jesus Christ the word, the Logos, pre-existent, existed before the beginning, he is also coexistent, which means he is with God and is God. This is what John is saying. I'm not twisting words, I'm simply explaining what is written here in John chapter 1, verse 1. Now, let's go to the third condition, and that is this one. So, uh, Jesus is pre existence, his coexistence, and now his self existence. Self existence. And this is the substance of the deity, his nature. Now, you're going to ask the question, where do we find self-existence? Well, let's work our way down to verse 4. John writes, John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In him, that's Christ, was life. Life is found in Jesus. It doesn't say that Jesus carried the life of God, it says in Christ is life. Not just physical life, but all of life. Physical life, supernatural life, the life we see, the life we don't see. Jesus didn't receive life from another source. He possesses life and it's foundational to the Christian life. Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos, pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent you can see what john's doing here he's really trying to emphasize that jesus was more than just an historical figure now i want to talk about two terms that is helpful to understand if we're going to get a grasp of john chapter one and the first one is this creation is becoming and god is being now you may have heard these terms and used in various contexts all creation is becoming. In other words, what's happening is it's moving from one state to another state. I'll give you an example. Did you look in the mirror this morning? You didn't look in the mirror? Have a look in the mirror. See how you're going. Like, has much changed over the last 10 years? None at all. None at all. Um, we are becoming because we don't stay the same. Sorry to burst your bubble, but we are changing, okay? And so this is what becoming means. 
we don't stay the same look at your house beautiful house what's it going to be like in 50 years time it's becoming unless you've got an expert art at renovations look at your car classic example of your car I just love a brand new car how long does a brand new car stay brand new from about the moment you drive it out of the dealer isn't it and from then on it's becoming look at your garden you love to plant all these new plants and everything like that and see them grow but they are becoming they don't stay the same wouldn't it be great if a garden just stayed in its maintained position of perfection for it doesn't it's becoming and that's creation have a look at any part of creation it's not being it's 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 changing from one state to another compare that to god as a being he is god not changing and complete now this is this is really really important because there are a number of belief systems and even a number of probably pseudo christians who believe that and in some ways to solve the problem of evil you know we've got this problem that bad things happen and why does god who is so loving allow bad things to happen to people who he loves it just seems to be a dichotomy why does that happen it shouldn't happen so therefore i'll solve in my mind that god doesn't know everything he's sort of working it out as he goes along and he goes oops there's a bit of evil happening i'll work towards solving that problem of evil so god is continually knowing and changing in order to address the evolving evil within our world now that's a belief system now i know you we don't believe it but we're we're tempted to believe those things to sort of resolve the problem of evil that god is continually working things out in our lives in order to address that problem but that basically says that god is becoming god is not a being god is changing in order to address the surrounding situation around us well i think john makes it quite clear that god is a being he's unchanging he's complete nothing needs to be added to god the bible says that god is being complete in knowledge john doesn't finish here now he starts with the whole concept that jesus has the life so let's let's go back to that john 1 verse 4 john 1 verse 4 he says in him in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind now he quite um, deliberately is bringing life and light together here and he uses this regularly and and so for one of the reasons why we've called this sermon series a light in the darkness because john over and over and over we see again that he uses the metaphor of a, a light to describe jesus if we go to verse 5 we read that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it similar construction as he's writing this is as, as to um, the word and god the word was with god and the word is god we've got we've got life and we've got light the the life is with the light and the 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 life is the light and so it goes on similar construction with and is and this is what christ brings and one i think one of the wonderful illustrations of a light is its power and you could ask the question which is more powerful light or darkness and it to a certain extent it doesn't matter what size that light is if you bring a tiny tiny little candle in a pitch pitch black room what does that small candle do to the light 
And it's a powerful illustration of Jesus overcoming darkness, even a small candle. Now, we move on again. I'm going to move on reasonably quickly on to to verse 6. John writes, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Um, Which John's that? Now, it gets a bit confusing because we've got the Apostle John writing this book about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So he became uh, aware of the, the light of Christ so that through him all might believe he himself was not the light, John the Baptist, not the light, but he came as a witness to the light to show people that one was coming greater than he the light of the world who would overcome the darkness. He pointed to a larger light. Verse 9 and 10, we read, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent, holy God, bringing life and light into the world. Now, You might have this from time to time, and some people may say, prove to me that Jesus is the eternal God. Prove to me that he is the eternal God. Now, what proof is there? Some will say, well, Jesus did miracles. Well, see, the apostles did miracles, didn't they? Now, I know they did it in Jesus' name, but there's been plenty of miracles So I don't think that that's enough to merely point to the fact that Jesus did miracles. The main proof that Jesus is the eternal God is what we find in John chapter 1. And so if we were to go, say, John chapter 1, verse 3, we read this. John says that through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, you've either got to accept that or you've got to throw the whole Bible into question. The sole evidence for Jesus being the eternal God. Now, you could sort of say, well, that was just John's opinion. Okay. What does the Apostle Paul have to say about this? Well, how about we go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And if you thought John's statement was powerful enough, what about the Apostle Paul? He says, for in him, that's Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, there's only one description, there's only one solution for who can fit that description, only one, and that is God. True? No created being can fit that description, can they? So therefore, Paul makes it quite clear as he emphasised what John has to say, that Jesus is God. Proof that Jesus is the eternal God. But here's the interesting thing. Not just created by God, equal to part of God. Now, even though he created all things, we get into an interesting little track here in verse 11, where John writes... He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The Word, the Word who became flesh, the one who holds everything in his hands, 
came to be amongst us, Emmanuel, and he's referring here, John, to the Jews, they rejected him. The uncreated creator came into his creation and the creation rejected him. Do you want me to say that again? The uncreated creator came into his creation and his creation rejected him. This is John's testimony. The proof that Jesus is the eternal God. All creation is made through him. But John doesn't stop there and just sort of say, well, he made everything, there's enough. He goes on to a far more personal argument. The second proof that Jesus is the eternal God. The first proof, Jesus made all things. Second thing is, he is making all things new in us. His spiritual creation. We read this in verse 12 and 13. John says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's, that's you and I who have received Jesus Christ who acknowledge what Jesus Christ has done for us on on the cross his death and his resurrection we've surrendered to him and we are his spiritual creation you've heard the term we are we are a new creation we're now born of God the second proof that Jesus is the eternal God he's made all things that we can see visible and invisible by the way but also he's renewing his own creation. He's creating a spiritual family, not by flesh, not by physical parents, and we become his new creation. And John makes these powerful statements regarding the deity of Christ, regarding the humanity of Christ, regarding his physical creating act and regarding his spiritual creating act. And we're only in chapter 1. Who's looking forward to the next 10 weeks? Right up until his death and resurrection, where it all comes together as this climatic act. I find it fascinating that quite often, I don't know whether you do this, whenever you, whenever you read a book and you want to know, uh, can I be bothered reading this book? What's this book all about? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go right to the very end and find out how it ends. You would have done that. No, no, it ruins the moment, isn't it? But here I'll give you a little clue. I hope this doesn't ruin the moment. I'm going to go right to the very end of, of John's gospel and find out, you know, does, does John put an exclamation mark on the end of his gospel? Why do I need to read? Why, what's so important about John's gospel? Well, here it is, right in John chapter 20, verse 31, right to the very end, we go here. And this is what John, this is not just information. He's saying, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the gospel. That's what he's, he says it's for. 
So he starts off with this powerful introduction. For these next 10 weeks, we're going to be, we're going to be looking at the words and, and, and what Jesus says and does in all of this, that we might believe and we may have life in his name. And, and, and my prayer is that for those of us here who have believe, been believers and have surrendered to Christ and we've been living in him for, for years and years, this may encourage our faith. This may give us eyes to see. It may give, give us the, the, the strength to, to, to go out and continue to live with him. But I also, my prayer is for those who are still wondering, who still have those questions, that as we spend time in John's gospel, there are people here who may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, I have life in his name, that we may believe. And so I think there's no better opportunity today than to come today in a symbolic way to eat from a biscuit and drink from a cup, which simply represents the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was, was broken and shed on the cross for us. His, his redemptive act. And here's this um, amazing thing. And look, for us as, as Baptists, we simply see these as, as symbols and symbolically um, representing an eating of his, his flesh and drinking of, of his blood. The one who came, who was fully, fully human. Fully human, like us. But also, fully God. Only God can forgive. You know that, don't you? Only God can reconcile our sins. And so as someone who died on the cross, through that he offered forgiveness for us through his death. And so as we take and eat and drink together, we're, we're remembering, but it's also like now we're partaking with him. We're saying, I am now in you. It's no longer Jesus and me. It's we're in it together. We're in the same family. We abide in him. As we'll, we'll, we'll find out in a few weeks' time, we're going to talk about the vine and the branches. Where does the vine stop and where do the branches start? Well, we're all in this together. Jesus, the life giver, who offers us life, forgiveness and light. Let's eat and drink together that we may remember and have opportunity to give thanks to God for what he's done through his son, Jesus. Now, if you're, you're visiting with us or if you're not a member of this church or anything like that, that doesn't matter. Anybody who just loves Jesus, you're welcome to join with us together as we eat and drink together. Very soon, I'm going to invite you to come up the front and uh, we'll give you an opportunity to take a, a biscuit and a cup, make your way back to your seats. You can eat the biscuit in your own time and we'll drink together and we'll remember what Christ has done for us his body and his blood, broken and shed on the cross, fully God, fully human, to offer the forgiveness of sins and new life in him. Can I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
we thank you for, for John chapter 1. We thank you for the way in which you've worked through your servant John to explain so powerfully the nature of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we don't serve a created being. We have been redeemed by God himself. So we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son to die for us, that by accepting this, surrendering to you, we may be one of your most powerful expressions, a supernatural new creation. We thank you for all that you have done. And we pray this in Jesus' name.